The New Frontiers in Functional Medicine podcast is proudly sponsored by Designs for Health. Designs for Health is a family-owned professional brand offered exclusively to healthcare professionals and their patients. For over 25 years, they have been the healthcare professional's trusted source for research-backed nutritional products. Their guiding philosophy, science first, is demonstrated by a commitment to research-driven products, synergistic formulations, and meaningful quantities of therapeutic ingredients. Find them at www.designsforhealth.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Uh, Today, we are talking to a very long friend of mine. I've been working with him for years, Dr. David Brady. Uh, And we're going to be covering all things fibromyalgia uh, with, again, as always, a focus on what we can think about uh, with regard um, as clinicians. So how we can address this more fruitfully in our practice. Uh, So let me tell you a little bit about David. He is a leading naturopathic doctor uh, at Whole Body Medicine in Fairfield, Connecticut. Actually, he's a leading ND beyond uh, beyond his clinic. I'd say, you know, really globally, you've been been doing great work over the years. He's also vice president of health sciences and the director of the Human Nutrition Institute at the University of Bridgeport. Uh, He's chief medical officer at Designs for Health, uh, as well as Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory. Uh, Dr. Brady is a sought-after presenter and prolific author of medical papers and research articles on fibromyalgia, as well as dedicated champion and advocate for patients suffering with fibromyalgia diagnosis. Uh, You are likely aware of the fact that he's recently published The Fibrofix, uh, a really great book. You can learn about that uh, at fibrofix.com. Uh, and you can also read more about David, David and some of, his, um, some of the work he's doing at drdavidbrady.com. Incidentally, we will have all of these links uh, posted to the uh, webpage for this podcast. David's also, you know, again, as I, he's published on fibromyalgia, in, in fact, arguably from a functional perspective, he's published the best papers out there. And his book kind of opens those up and, and languages of them for the layperson and expands on some concepts. But we will have links to a couple of his research papers on our site. And, you know, you can, you'll be able to access the full text. And I just strongly recommend you do. Um, there's a great algorithm in his 2006 paper that I've used, not only in my practice, but when I'm educating folks, um, because there's really nothing else out there uh, like it. So David, welcome to New Frontiers. Thanks, Kara. It's a pleasure to be on with <laughs> such an old and dear friend and uh, respected colleague. So, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about something that uh, is a big passion of mine to try to disseminate um, um, more accurate information about and clear up some of the myths that uh, seem to persist uh, about this disorder. Well, not only are you clearing this up and straightening things out, but you're really expanding the toolkit for clinicians of all stripes. Um, Tell me about how you ended up moving into the topic of fibromyalgia to this extent. Um, Yeah, Yeah. give me the backstory. (laughs) That's an interesting story. Well, you know, before I trained um, in clinical nutrition and uh, ultimately in in naturopathic medicine and, and really most accurately in functional medicine, 
uh, long, long ago, over 25 years ago now, I, I went to chiropractic school, and that was my first foray into sort of my healthcare education. I was an electronics engineer before that, and I got out of chiropractic school, and I went there thinking I was going to do a lot of bio, biomechanical research and, and marry up my engineering degree to my, you know, this great training in biomechanics and physical medicine and all. And it really took a left turn. Um, a lot of my mentors um, were uh, at Texas Chiropractic College, where I went to school, were really um, quite progressive uh, interventional nutritionists and botanical medicine um, practitioners, sort of what we would hmm. more akin to the modern naturopathic medical doctor. And I was really inspired by that. Then I found functional medicine. So I really started going down more of a path of solving complex metabolic, you know, chronic disease uh, situations. And I got out of chiropractic school and went into practice. And I started seeing these patients that uh, had fibromyalgia, or at least thought they did, said they did. And uh, some of them I was able to get better with all of the stuff I learned in functional medicine, going at it from a metabolic standpoint and so forth. And then there was a subset of them clearly that were a different animal. And they did have this uh, sort of chronic um, pain perception issue that mm -hmm. centrally mediated very complicated disorder that was really difficult to get better. And I realized very quickly that I was not equipped to deal with them. Uh, I certainly mm -hmm. wasn't trained on fibromyalgia enough in my chiropractic education. What I was told back then and all other healthcare providers, and even to this day, unfortunately, what they learn about it in training is not much. Sometimes it's talked about in a dismissive type of term, like, you know, there's doubt of uh, whether it's right. really a real clinical entity. And then what you're told it's not that helpful, and I come to find out it's usually wrong and inaccurate. So I figured out, you know, I had to make myself an expert on this topic if I had any hope to help these patients get better, which I was really dedicated to doing. Uh, I found a kindred spirit in, in a colleague, um, uh, Michael Schneider, who's now a NIH-funded researcher in integrative medicine uh, and physical medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and we were both teaching myofascial pain seminars together, uh, different hands-on physical medicine approaches to myofascial pain. And we realized that fibromyalgia in its true sense was not myofascial pain syndrome, even though many people confused the two. And we kind of embarked on this journey together. And over the course of a couple of decades, reaching out to the world experts at the time in fibromyalgia, reading every single peer-reviewed publication that was out there, looking at every textbook chapter, um, we sort of became experts on our own on this. And then we started publishing and researching ourselves. And over many, many years, seeing many, many patients uh, with at least a fibromyalgia label, if not actual fibromyalgia, I you know, had this couple of decade long experience, both you know, academically and research-based, but also clinically and um, you know, we published a lot to try to clear things up with our colleagues uh, as healthcare providers. But the latest foray, you know, with the FibroFix Summit and then the FibroFix book was really to take the story to the streets, as they say, to the people that really mm -hmm. have it or think they have it and make them more educated about it so they can be a, their own best health advocate and navigate this healthcare system, which really doesn't do a great job with these 
patients with fibromyalgia or those who think they have fibromyalgia. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to, to, to recommend to people listening, again, you can go into this podcast page on my website and actually pop open the um, Brady, Schneider, and Pearl paper um, in JMPT, which, is, uh, which was published in 2006. I know 2006, it's a decade-old paper, but arguably it's, um, you know, it's really the most uh, comprehensive look at the condition. And if you scroll to a, Appendix A in this paper, you'll see some of the concepts that we're going to be talking about today. So you can just sort of track, track along with us. Uh, David, I know it's, an, it's a remarkably expensive issue. And, you know, I was in the pain clinic, as you know, Advanced Diagnostic yeah. Pain Treatment Center over at Yale New Haven. And uh, we were treating, quote, fibromyalgia. You know, it was, just, it, was like, it was the garbage can diagnosis. And, you know, as I was reflecting on our talk today, I was thinking back to those years. And, you know, I would see plenty of patients with this, di with this particular label. And we gave them opiates. or I, Well, I didn't. I was practicing naturopathic medicine. But, right. you know, they were, they were commonly on polypharmacy, opiates, psychotropics anti-seizure meds, muscle relaxants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, it was just, it was just, it, it was really challenging to see how debilitated they were and how um, over-medicated they were. But obviously they needed them and there was still breakthrough pain because, you know, we didn't have this functional. Actually, I had some nice outcome. Perhaps we can talk about some of that later, but you're going to cover it. Um, but in the, in the mainstream medical model, it's just, it's, polypharmacy and it continues to be polypharmacy um, regardless you know of, of, of what what type of what you know what fibromyalgia is without understanding the complexity of it so can you let's just move into that define fibromyalgia and then um, you know talk about how it's diagnosed and then we'll just move through some of the evolution of your thinking in a more detailed way yeah, well, you know, the first actual, I mean, fibromyalgia grew up as a disease or a disorder, if you will, in um, back in about 1987 when it was first issued an ICD-9 code at the time. So it became a real entity because now there was third-party uh, billing potential for it. And that actually made research dollars flow into it, where before um, there was really a scant amount of published research in index journals. And then it really exploded in 1987, and that created a real need or desire for a formal diagnostic criteria, which first was published by the American College of Rheumatology, or ACR, in 1990. Um, it was further modified, or substantially modified, um, in, um, in uh, 2000, and then in 2010, uh, a whole new criteria came out, uh, modified again in 2011, and then just recently hot off the presses, we have the brand new ACR criteria of 2016, but they all really center around some common principles. And that is, for someone to be diagnosed with fibromyalgia, it needs to be not a new condition. It needs to be chronic. So it needs to be three to six months or more in duration. You need to make sure that there's no other medical condition uh, that would explain the person's symptoms, and that can include one or more um, medical diseases or conditions that might be ganging up on the patient, creating all of the normal symptoms of fibromyalgia. So it is a diagnosis of exclusion, which um, many clinicians seem to forget along the way. Uh, 
Right. Um, but it really centers around some major elements, and that is the person's main symptom that they would say was their most troubling situation would be unrelenting um, body-wide achiness or pain. And it's a pain that is described usually as achiness, so a dull ache, not a sharp, shooting, ridiculous type of pain. And it has to be global in that it really needs to be all over the body, above the waist, below the waist, left side, right side, you know, along the midline, out in the periphery. It has to be everywhere. It can't be regional or localized pain syndromes. And that includes multiple regions of the body. It needs to be a phenomena that's occurring without discrimination around the entire body. And that's another place where a lot of clinicians miss the diagnosis or they lend toward overdiagnosis because they don't make sure that it is truly global pain, not focal pain due to some, you know, somatic problem in the muscles, joints, ligaments, soft tissues, etc. But also along with this unrelenting achiness around the body is the fact that virtually 100% of, of these patients have long-term persistent fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that doesn't mean the disease should be confused with chronic fatigue syndrome because you often hear them mentioned together, chronic fatigue yeah. slash fibromyalgia, which is a falsehood, a misnomer. It needs to cease, but it started happening about 30 years ago and it's never stopped. Um, these are vastly different disorders with entirely different diagnostic criteria. So they are not one in the same. And they should not be commingled in the way that they commonly are. Um, but the other thing about fibromyalgia which is different than chronic fatigue syndrome as well, is that there's a whole host of what we call central sensitivity uh, syndrome type of problems um, related to hypervigilance. So you see things like, for instance, a strong association association with irritable bowel syndrome, so vague gastrointestinal problems, Uh, Mm. irritable bladder, basically irritable everything. These patients are in a Mm. persistent state of sympathetic dominance and, and um, really an imbalance in their uh, autonomic nervous system. Uh, along with that, they have other centrally mediated issues such as anxiety, um, depression, um, uh, cognitive dysfunction, so-called fibrofog, and they have a very specific type of sleep dysfunction where they get what's called unrefreshed sleep. So they even when they sleep 10, 12, 15 hours, they wake up and feel like they never slept. So they're not restored or regenerated through sleep. Um, And it's a really interesting phenomenon. Once you get used to all of these hallmark elements of the disorder, you quickly find that the vast majority of people who come in and say they have fibromyalgia or someone has told them they have fibromyalgia, could be a physician, it could be their neighbor, could be Dr. Google, it doesn't matter the vast majority of them actually do not meet the criteria and do not have classic fibromyalgia. They definitely have things wrong with them. They're just things that are commonly being mislabeled as fibromyalgia. And many of these things are the things that would most likely be picked up by a functional medicine doctor and are very hard for the you know, conventionally trained physician to, um, to understand because they're just not trained in that model of, of care. Right, right, right. So 
is it, so how do you diagnose a true fibromyalgia? I mean, I'm assuming that you're paying careful attention to the irritable everything presentation on your intake. Is it mostly clinical? Are you looking at labs for this? And just, let's just talk about true classic fibromyalgia right now, and then we'll, we'll expand beyond that and, and look at some of the fibro mimickers in a minute. Okay. Well, you know, Carrie, it really goes down to medical diagnosis 101. You know, it's no different than any other disorder in that it really centers around first doing a really good history and intake yep. with the patient, hearing their story, and we'll talk about what elements you're looking for there in a moment. It requires a good physical examination uh, and assessment. And then you need to finally turn to laboratory and imaging and, you know, those kind of things in any medical diagnosis. But in fibromyalgia, what you're looking for in the history, first of all, the vast majority of these patients will be females. The right. two most um, uh, prevalent um, uh, things that lend toward a diagnosis of fibromyalgia is being a woman and getting older. So the vast majority of these patients, and I mean way above 95%, are female, and they're somewhere between the age of, let's say, 30 and 60 at diagnosis. Um, certainly, you could be younger, you could be older, you could be male, but it's the uh, exception, not the rule. The other thing in the history is you want this clear um, history of global pain. So when you ask the patient, okay, where does it hurt? If they start saying, oh, my shoulder, my hip, um, if they start saying that their joints hurt, that's not fibromyalgia because fibromyalgia is not an articular disorder, right? You start looking for more degenerative joint disease or some sort of inflammatory autoimmune uh, arthritity or something like that. So you want the main pain being perceived in the softer compliant tissues, muscles, you know, fascia, ligaments, tendons, and so forth. And you want it to be everywhere, not in a couple of places. You also want to listen for those hit the history of those concomitant elements of anxiety, even panic attack, mm -hmm. uh, at least mild depression, um, mind racing inability to go to sleep. And then once they are asleep, when they wake up, they don't feel refreshed from sleep. And then a history of some level of cognitive dysfunction. Uh, and irritable bowel syndrome. So, you know, gas, bloating, constipation tends to be the rule, but they could get alternating constipation and diarrhea. The more of those boxes they check, the more likely they actually have a central, you know, pain processing disorder like fibromyalgia and not some other condition. In the um, examination, you need to do just a good nuts and bolts physical exam to make sure that there's no other medical issues going on. But I still am an advocate of, and now I don't do those 18 specific points that were in the original diagnostic criteria and no longer are, um, but I do challenge the person with some firm digital pressure into major areas of muscle bulk. So, you know, I may push into their anterior uh, thighs and their posterior thighs. I may kind of squeeze their gastrosoleus. I may squeeze their upper arm, their forearms. Mm -hmm. challenge different areas of the body to satisfy for myself that they actually have a pain response all over globally to a level of pressure that in the normal person would only be interpreted as squeezing or pressure and not pain. And then finally, you know, from the laboratory standpoint, 
it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to do the nuts and bolts of rule outs. You have to rule out, you know, um, organ failure, um, undiagnosed malignancy, uh, MS, uh, you know, inflammatory conditions. So a, a, a complete blood count, uh, a basic blood chemistry profile. Um, usually uh, we are doing a granular thyroid panel, you know, with not only TSH, but both total and free T4 and T3. We're looking at thyroid antibodies on the first pass. And if the patient is particularly complaining of, you know, some perception of pain in the joints uh, as well, we're usually adding on maybe an arth a, a rheumatoid panel, an arthritis panel. But usually at a minimum, we're doing global markers of inflammation like CRP, SED rates, because Classic fibromyalgia is not a systematic inflammatory disorder. I know doctors are trained to think of pain as being inflammatory driven. Not all pain is driven by inflammation or by tissue insult. So the classic pain that we deal with all the time tends to be due to damaged, irritated tissue and inflammation, but this is a different kind of pain. It's not a um, neurogenic pain. It's not really... Uh, it's a different kind of pain. It's what they're now sometimes referring to as third pain. It's a third type of pain that is more deep in the brain, centrally mediated uh, pain perceptual issue. So it's not amenable to anti-inflammatories, even steroids. And ironically enough, even opioid pain relievers don't tend to appreciably change this type of pain of classic fibromyalgia. So using yeah. the laboratory to rule out uh, a lot of other medical conditions is important, but when we start screening for some of these things that masquerade as fibromyalgia, we start getting into the metabolic or functional lab testing realm, and we use a lot of organic acid testing, and we can talk about what we look for on there if you want. Um, a lot of times we're also doing more molecular GI testing, looking at the GI microbiota and seeing if there's disruption and problems there. Uh, and really trying to put a whole comprehensive clinical case together on this patient and find out, are there metabolic issues contributing? Are there organic medical issues contributing? Are there musculoskeletal problems that need a physical medicine approach? Or is this really a centrally mediated pain processing disorder? Thank you. That's, that's very useful. Um, and so, so basically, you're not... It, it, you're, all of these standard labs that you're going to be running are normal or fairly unremarkable, right? Maybe perhaps from a functional perspective, you might see some abnormalities. Now, just for your standard workup, for your, um, are, I mean, are there any labs that you might see trending or is everything really basically going to be okay? Not, well, you know, not including I, specialty stuff. Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, you always have to understand that the patient has the right to more than one disorder at any given time. Yeah. So the minute you find something doesn't necessarily rule out everything else. So what I do see in a, in a lot of the patients who come in who say they have fibromyalgia or they may have been diagnosed even at a rheumatology center of excellence with fibromyalgia or they, for some reason, they think they have fibromyalgia. Within that total population, I see a lot of thyroid dysfunction, right? right? A lot of low T3 syndrome kind of stuff where they don't convert from T4 to T3 or they have excessive reverse T3 uh, or in some way, shape or form, 
they have underperforming, if not overtly abnormal thyroid function. Um, I see a lot of low uh, ferritins and serum irons. Okay. Um, I will often see um, some level of evidence of uh, chronic steltoviral uh, infection wow. going on with, you know, irritating the immune system, whether it's EBV, CMV, one of those sort of ubiquitous viruses, if you will. But uh -huh. when you get down to actual people who truly have classic fibromyalgia and meet that diagnostic criteria, a lot of that melts away, but not all of it. Even the patients who have classic central pain processing disorders, I personally find that a tremendous number of them have suboptimal thyroid function, and they do respond symptomatically and clinically if you optimize that. And that's not a big surprise, though, because so many females in general have that going on. Um, and uh, so that's something I always look for. But um, generally, the classic fibromyalgia patients do not have evidence of a lot of systemic inflammation. So they don't have CRP. They don't have ESRs. Um, if you look for really micro levels of inflammation, you may find that. Um, but uh, so that's sort of the patterns we see. Now, we also on functional testing, for instance, generally see a lot of patterns related to suboptimal energy production or ATP production at the level of the mitochondrial um, uh, biochemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, but what does unmask very frequently in classic fibromyalgia in organic acid testing is imbalances in neurotransmitter metabolites, particularly the catecholamine ashes like vanyl mandelic acid or vanyl mandelate or VMA, and HVA tends to be on the high side, mm -hmm. and their serotonin markers like 5-HIAA tend to be on the low side. That's the classic pattern, although not everyone conforms to that pattern. Okay. Okay, God, that's really helpful, David. Uh, listen, I just wanted to circle back to a few comments you made. First of all, folks, just I wanted to just hit home again that David said that trigger point or tender point points are no longer part of the diagnosis, and he's not using them. I think it's important. Right, tender, now, that's tender points, Kara. Tender points, that's another point I want to clarify. Tender points okay. have often been sort of... Um, the, the, the name trigger points and tender points have been used interchangeably, and they're very different things. Trigger points are associated not with fibromyalgia, but with myofascial pain syndrome, true problems in the muscle where there's that focal sort of palpable knot of yes. the trigger point and the, the taut bands along the, you know, out toward the origin and insertion. They're very tender when you push on them. They can uh, cause a very defined referred pain pattern defined by Trebel, Simon, Nimmo, and others uh, when you hold pressure on them. That's very different than the tender points of fibromyalgia where there's really no palpable knot in the muscle. The, the muscle feels normal, looks normal, uh, the biopsies are normal, everything's normal. It's just when you push anywhere on the muscles, they hurt, so they're tender points. Um, so that's a big differentiating point. But the tender point exam, which was those 18 points first right. put out in the original ACR criteria, now no longer are you instructed to actually do the tender point index with, you were supposed to do it with this pressure algometer. Nobody had those to put a specific amount of pressure into these 18 points. But those 18 points were kind of ridiculous because a lot of them 
where areas where everyone hurts, just if they work on a computer, drive a car, yeah. postural distortion patterns, they were areas like, you know, the suboccipital muscles, right? You know, where the, the cervical muscles hold your head up all day or the upper trapezius muscles, very common points for trigger points. Uh, the upper lateral aspect of the forearm, like the tennis elbow area where everyone hurts, the gluteal muscles where everyone hurts. So that was really fallacy. Yep. Now there's a subjective questionnaire to ask patients whether they hurt in all these different areas of the body. I still do a physical examination where I challenge the body to see if there's an excessive pain response to digital pressure, but I don't conform my exam to those 18 defined points. In fact, I avoid many of those points and I instead go right to the heart or the middle of the large muscle groups. Um, And that's very, very instructive to me. So I think that should still be done. The rationale for pulling it out of the diagnostic criteria to me was ridiculous. It was that physicians are no longer trained how to do competent hands-on examinations. So Um, rather than pull the competency up, you know, they just took it out of the diagnostic criteria. They, they realized that modern physicians are really good at ordering MRIs and functional, you know, uh, uh, nerve, you know, nerve velocity, uh, studies and all that stuff, but they're just not very good at putting their hands on people anymore. (laughs) That is funny. Jeez. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. I have two more quick, actually I have three quick questions I want comments on, and then I want to dive back into you know, just the, the, what we're thinking about with treatment and diagnostics and so forth. So first of all, you know, why, why are we seeing this in women primarily? Any thought, I'm sure you've thought about it. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we don't definitively know, uh, but there are a lot of hypotheses out there. Um, Fundamentally the, you know, the male and the female brain, now we're generalizing here. There are certainly outliers to this uh, exceptions to this, but the male and the female nervous systems seem to react differently to stress, particularly ongoing chronic stress at a high level, and particularly when the subject is exposed to those stressors at an early age, when the nervous system is still very neuroplastic, very malleable, and is sort of learning how to cope with its environment. If young females are put in environments, for instance, uh, with very what I will call rocky circumstances in their upbringing. This could be, let's say, an alcoholic or a substance abusing parent, um, an abusive parent, um, or just really super outrageously high expectations on, a, on the part of a parent that the child can never feel like they will can possibly measure up, and mm-hmm. they're made to feel like that. Certainly, if there is uh, verbal abuse, physical abuse, and most notably sexual abuse going on, um, both the male and the female um, is damaged by that, but they seem to um, react to that in a a different way. Um, There's an inordinately high level of what we call adverse childhood events uh, in the histories of uh, women who have classic fibromyalgia. Um, It's not uncommon to hear histories like, you know, yeah, my parents went through a divorce. My father was a very authoritarian uh, alcoholic, he used to beat my mother or used to yell at us, we were afraid of him. You know, if there's ever a situation where there's um, a, a feeling of lack of safety or a threat physically while the person's growing up, their nervous system seems to get into a persistent state 
of hypervigilance, sort of waiting for the next, you know, disaster or the next shoe to drop. And over time, it gets almost locked in that kind of pattern at the most primal level, at the level of the limbic system uh, and deep centers of the brain. And in females, particularly if they're then subjected to stressors later in life, it can almost reactivate or, or elevate that dysfunction of the stress response to the point where they develop clinical issues such as irritable bowel syndrome, anxiety, panic attack, insomnia, and the most you know, profound example would be full-blown classic fibromyalgia. The males who are in similar circumstances do not generally go on to develop those kind of disorders, but they do go on to develop um, patterns of um, very easy to frustrate, um, uh, acting out in, in violence and frustration. Uh, they tend to be repeat abusers in the way that they may have been abused. Mm-hmm. Uh, females don't, do not tend to do that. So they're, we're very different in the way we respond to those things. Um, it's not fully understood why that's the case, but it's certainly um, pretty predictably observed. That's so fascinating. I mean, it all, it seems almost like a description of sort of a testosterone versus estrogen to, to yeah, incredibly and there's, there's, simplify it. But. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's been looked into. They've never made any firm correlations uh, in the role of um, estrogen, testosterone, and so forth. Although, like I said, there's a strong uh, correlation with uh, underperforming thyroid uh, mm-hmm. and these disorders. It seems like Although independently, that can cause a lot of the symptoms associated with fibromyalgia and lead to erroneous diagnosis, there's a strong amount of overlay or or comorbidity with classic fibromyalgia and underperforming thyroid. And of course, we know that females are much more susceptible to that, um, particularly of the autoimmune variety like Hashimoto's and uh, Graves. Uh, And interestingly enough, the males who get Hashimoto's, you know, much, much, much less than females, but the males who do get it tend to be the males with the highest estrogen levels. So there's been a lot of different ties in um, to estrogen and, and autoimmunity uh, through various mechanisms that we don't really have time to get into today. But yeah. it's a complex business, you know, there's a lot of, lot of interconnections here that uh, are not there's a lot of associations understood. There's not a lot of causal mechanisms understood in some of these um, interesting questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And it actually answers what I was going to just ask you for the follow-up, which is what would we look for on family medical history and past medical history? And I think you've outlined a lot of it. It seems almost like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a PTSD type of yeah, I think that's a great observation because it has been described as exactly that. Uh, the, the central nervous system dysfunction and the neurotransmitter uh, dysfunctional pattern seen in classic fibromyalgia is really seems to be a variant of exactly what you see in overt post-traumatic stress disorder. And most people think of PTSD as something that people experience after, you know, battlefield, uh, you know, uh, experiences or rape or some really, really uh, horrific acute event. Um, But that's not really a full comprehensive understanding of PTSD. There are variations of PTSD and Peter Moll Moll has done some of the best work on this when he talks about adverse uh, childhood events and adverse life events um, can cause sort of a lower level PTSD 
type of presentation than full-blown PTSD. It's almost like, if I can make an analogy, it's almost like, you know, gluten or, or non-celiac gluten sensitivity versus celiac disease. You know, it's like shades of, of gray, you know? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. That's it's really, really useful. Now, listen, I got to just circle back. I asked, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but are, are you using a specific intake to, for your, for your fibromyalgia patients or do you have one created? I'm, I mean, I know that clinicians listening to this call would be highly interested in it <laughs> or are you just using your standard? Uh, uh, I, I, well, I use my standard sort of functional medicine you know, patient intake question, uh, you know, the full packet. I ask a lot of questions about a lot right. of things. Right. Uh, I, I use the, uh, the metabolic screen questionnaire that, you know, emanated from the Institute for Functional Medicine a long time ago. So I do use that. Okay. But in addition to that, in anyone who's coming in complaining of a, you know, chronic pain syndrome and anyone who thinks they may have fibromyalgia, I do. Now, I don't think this is the greatest criteria and I, it's not the end all be all. But I do use a patient questionnaire version of the 2011 modification of the American College of Rheumatology's uh, diagnostic criteria, which involves sort of a pain diagram where you have the body front and back and a bunch of check boxes in anatomical areas where they check whether they have significant pain in those areas over the past several weeks. So that's sort of a subjective questionnaire uh, on paper uh, of, you know, do, where do they hurt and do they hurt all over or just in certain areas? And then there's specific questions related to a lot of these concomitant symptoms such as fatigue, irritable bowel syndrome, headache, uh, and so forth. And then, uh, you know, a cognitive dysfunction, memory issues. And then it asks a couple questions on, you know, has this pain been, uh, have these symptoms been present at their current level for at least three months, then you have to answer yes. And do you have a medical condition that would otherwise explain these conditions? The person has to answer no. Uh, so that's a questionnaire that's available out there on the net. I, I provide it to people in my seminars. It's in my book. Um, and I think it's actually on my website. If you go to fibrofix.com um, under resources, I think it is, uh, you will find some of these questionnaires and other things that I use, and certainly you're welcome to use them. The, uh, the diagnostic um, questionnaire associated with the ACR 2011 criteria is, uh, is free use. Okay, perfect. All right, and we'll actually link to that specific page in addition to giving the other two websites. Um, okay, now listen, just really quickly, because I want to jump into treatment and I want to talk a little bit more about the specialty labs. Um, just, just snapshot difference between fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. I know those have been, have been linked up for forever. I think that we're starting to separate them out. And I, and, and, and certainly a big reason why we're doing that is because you've been educating on this pretty tirelessly to our community. So I think our community is be, beginning to tease them apart, but just, you know, give me a, just give me a thumbnail of the difference of the two conditions. Yeah. Um, well, I'll start out just by saying that it is true that patients with true classic fibromyalgia have almost 100% correlation with ongoing persistent fatigue. Therefore, by loose definition, they have chronic fatigue, but it's not what is being talked about when they say chronic fatigue syndrome. Chronic fatigue syndrome um, is really something that started being appreciated you know, many decades ago, but it was first associated with 
often a history of it, it came on after a, an acute viral-like illness, like a flu type of illness. Therefore, you know, it, you know, the person's acute flu-like illness resolved, but they never quite reattain their level of uh, vitality and energy and so forth uh, that they once had. And when they looked into various immune markers, looking at, um, you know, lymphocyte subsets and, and you know, uh, CD ratios and all that, they found out that they had persistent immuno dysfunction, immune deficiency. That's where you got something like CFIDS, chronic fatigue and immune deficiency syndrome. Mm -hmm. So that prompted research into, you know, what viruses were responsible. And it is true, you see a whole lot of people who seem to have persistent immune irritation with uh, Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, HSV, H H uh, uh, HTLV-1, and others. Um, as potentially at least part of the picture of their persistent chronic fatigue syndrome. But the diagnostic criteria for a chronic fatigue syndrome really includes the fact that if you ask that patient what is their most pressing issue or concern, they would say the unrelenting fatigue. Yeah. And if you ask them about you know, anxiety, unrefreshed sleep, uh, pain all over the body, IBS, you don't nearly get the kind of correlation between chronic fatigue syndrome that you do with um, fibromyalgia. So conversely, in fibromyalgia, the most pressing symptom that the patient will almost always tell you is the pain. Yeah. The fatigue is secondary. Um, the, the way their brains behave are very different. In chronic fatigue syndrome, these patients are usually, uh, if you look in their stress response, they tend to have a lower flatline cortisol. So if you do a salivary cortisol test, for instance, and look at the four points throughout the day, they tend to be persistently low. And if you do organic acid testing and you look at the, the adrenal medullary products, like the catecholamines or adrenaline, you know, epinephrine, norepinephrine, mm -hmm. uh, even dopa, those markers, those metabolites tend to be low. So they underproduce the catecholamines. Um, that's why they're so fatigued. They can't even get off the couch. I mean, they generally don't have panic attacks and anxiety. They don't have the energy for a panic attack. <laughs> um, the fibromyalgia patient's different. They yeah. tend to, if you do check salivary cortisols, they have these low cortisol levels, you know, the classic of long-term adrenal stress, but they tend to have a compensatory pattern of elevated adrenal medullary products. So they're over-catecholamine yeah. producers, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and so forth. So that's why they have a tendency toward uh, things associated with high adrenaline output, like a sympathetic dominance, a hypervigilance. You get anxiety, you get panic attack, uh, you yep. get things like that, a racing mind where they can't enter uh, stage three and four delta wave sleep, which is the restorative sleep. They have these alpha waves that are more associated with a, waking, a relaxed waking state, even in their deepest times of sleep. When it should have delta waves, they have alpha waves. It's called alpha wave intrusion. So they never really shut the brain off. They're always on guard, if you will. So it's a very different pattern. So they really are inherently very different entities. They just got attached long time ago, sort of like glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate are always talked about <laughs> in the same breath, right? Uh, right? Why? Who knows? But they are. So it's just the way it is. Um, it's a hard <laughs> It's a hard thing to break. Well, you've just you've just done such a great job clarifying it, you know, and it seems so. I mean, really, if we sum, if I summarize in the most simplistic way, 
People with fibromyalgia are in a lot of pain. That's their chief complaint. Chronic fatigue, yep. they're really tired. And then, of yep. course, we have all this richness that you've just, you know, you've colored it in uh, to a good extent. And folks, the, the transcription for this podcast is available. So you can scroll through and get all of these um, myriad pearls that Dr. Brady has given to us. Okay. So let's circle back to, you know, just finishing up on the labs. You talked about organic acids. You're going to see evidence of mitochondropathy, so central energy pathway compromised. And then you also see the, um, the elevation of the catecholamine metabolites. And, um, I want to point out, though, Kara, yeah, that you yeah. know, a lot of people say, oh, my, you know, fibromyalgia is just mitochondrial dysfunction. That has not proved out to be the case. You do see, usually, it's not uncommon, even in a classic fibromyalgia patient, to see some level of, you know, suboptimal energy production. But um, it does not appear to be the major issue. And, you know, muscle biopsy and, and uh, functional, you know, physiology studies of various stripes in the muscle tissue of classic fibromyalgia patients does not suggest a significant mitochondriopathy. Although, you know, mitochondrial downregulation and energy production problems is a major cause of fatigue mm -hmm. um, and can definitely result in muscle achiness. Because if you just think of, let's say, a temporary mitochondriopathy, go out and run a bunch of sprints or do some right. exertional activity that you're just not used to and that you're not at a level right. of fitness uh, or acclimated to, you will have a couple of days where you may be tired, but your muscles are achy because of that buildup of lactic acid and other acidic metabolites because you just couldn't sustain enough oxygen for that level of demand and energy production. So your body went into anaerobic metabolism and the Cori cycle trying to generate a little bit more energy. And it takes a couple of days to clear that stuff out. You know, once you reinstate enough oxygen, you get out of oxygen debt. These people uh, who have mitochondrial disorders, uh, or it could be caused by profound uh, iron deficiency. You know, they're not carrying oxygen on the red blood cells to, to, um, fuel the mitochondrial furnace, or they have, you know, respiratory problems or whatever it may be the cause, they, if they're not making a bunch of ATP in the mitochondria, they will stack up and they will rely more on anaerobic metabolism and they will get energy deficiency because they're not making a lot of ATP. Their brains don't work very well because there's not enough ATP, so they have so-called fibrofog and their muscles will build up a bunch of acidic waste products. And if you go mashing on their muscles, with pressure, that those acidic waste products will hit free nerve endings and they'll get a pain response. So if, if it's a woman who's middle-aged and has that going on, she's undoubtedly going to get a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, even though there may be no anxiety, no depression, no IBS, none of that. Um, it's a common masquerader of fibromyalgia. So it could be some level of mitochondrial dysfunction that's associated with classic fibromyalgia, or it could be the primary reason why they have the symptoms that they have. And that's where the therapy really needs to be directed. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Again, that's really helpful. I see, you know, just looking at organic acids for years now, um, and thyroid, you know, full thyroid panels, I tend to see both of those, um, you know, central energy and, and, and su suboptimal thyroid track with any 
chronic disease that's been a, you're right exactly a that's time. a perfect statement you're, you're yeah. correct and yeah. particularly in women and you know it's just I think thyroid underperformance is so prevalent in women today as they age and start you know getting into their late 30s into their 40s the more stress the worse the more uh, you know children they've had the more stress is on the system the worse their GI microbial pattern is there's molecular mimicry there's all kinds of stuff the worse they eat I mean there's as we know it's a complicated issue but if thyroid is suboptimal, that's the metabolic set point, and that's what's telling, you know, that has control over, over a lot of the biochemistry, including in the mitochondria. So everything's going to slow down. Um, so it, it, it's easy to get a lot of crossover stuff in all this. So it really takes a good astute clinician to know how to triage all this stuff and know where to direct the primary, you know, um, um, attack, if you will, with, with your therapeutic intervention. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just, all right, so let's get to just, let's go ahead and comment on some of the other specialty testing you're using. You, you mentioned stool testing and, and, you know, anything else you might look at, and then we're going to go headlong into uh, treatment. So what uh, else? Um, when people have a lot of gut issues, um, you know, that would be usually classified like IBS, we still want to look for organic reasons why that may be occurring. And um, we really have to look at the, the GI environment. So um, as, as you know, and just as a matter of disclosure, I've been very involved in the laboratory industry over many years, including being a consultant on the uh, development of various GI-based tests. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, the latest venture in that is with the GI map, which is a a third-party validated Luminex-based molecular um, mapping of the GI microbiota for clinically significant and actionable uh, organisms. So pathogens, opportunists, as well as uh, uh, beneficial organisms. So with a real eye toward the opportunists that tend to uh, be associated with uh, or are associated with um, autoimmune diseases. So, you know, Klebsiella, Citrobacter, Proteus, Yersinia, are related to autoimmune thyroiditis, autoimmune uh, arthritis, I mean, you name it. So we try to rule that stuff out, clean up the gut environment as much as possible. Um, David Perlmutter has talked a lot about dysbiosis uh, creating metabolic um, uh, load and uh, LPS and other types of things that in the face of hyperpermeability of the GI mucosa can create sort of a gut-brain axis, leaky gut, leak, leaky brain, vagus nerve transmission, all that stuff, which can mm -hmm. create somewhat of a brain on fire syndrome and, and inflammation deep in the brain. And we see this in some studies of fibromyalgia patients where they have upregulations of some cytokine, uh, uh, cytokines associated with um, glial activation in the brain. So mm -hmm. this could create sort of a deep-seated inflammatory brain pain, even though the patient is not overtly inflammatory. Now, whether that explains classic fibromyalgia, I have serious doubts about that. I think that's a subset of people who have pain, fatigue, and other things related to this gut-brain axis issue. Um, everybody tries to make anything that is found that creates pain and fatigue. Oh, that's the reason for fibromyalgia. I think this fibromyalgia, classic fibromyalgia, is a different animal than a lot of these metabolic reasons because the gut-brain connection doesn't explain why it's mainly females, doesn't explain necessarily the anxiety, depression, and other things. So, um, but it is something certainly to look at 
and I think just fundamental to dealing with anybody with chronic illness, we have to test, look at, and optimize and correct anything going on in the gut that's not good. Right. So we right. use the, di- the GI map from Diagnostic Solutions Lab. If you want to learn more about that, read the white paper. You can just go to diagnosticsolutionslab.com. Um, there's a lot of information about that. The it's other great- specialty test I may use is, you know, we have to rule out, particularly I practice in Connecticut, right? So I'm always trying to rule out, particularly if there's articular and neurological stuff going on that seems to align um, and stuff in the history. We're trying to rule out, you know, Lyme, uh, but not only Borrelia, but um, co-infections, you know, with, with a lot of the other organisms as well. So while we will do, you know, Western blot and look at the different uh, bands and so forth, um, often if we're still suspicious, uh, we will turn toward other testing like Lyme and, and co-infection PCR testing uh, or even uh, Lyme cultures and sometimes cytokine pattern analysis, uh, such as an iSpot type of test. Okay, perfect. Now, um, I'm sure that somebody's thinking about, you know, the role that mold might play. I mean, are you ever looking at mold exposure or mycotoxins in your investigation? Uh, It's something to consider, particularly if the history suggests that and where they live and so forth. Uh, I tend to then will refer that out to people who are more skilled in that than I. Um, um, I, I am not a specialist in mold toxicity and the best practices for testing it and treating it and so forth. So uh, I tend to send that to folks who are a little bit more astute with that than I, but it's certainly always a consideration as are heavy metals and any other toxic burden that may be playing a role. Perfect. Thank you. So you're casting a pretty wide net. All right. So we're going to go, as we move into treatment, the last question on the lab front, which will segue into treatment is, are you looking at food reactions? I mean, I remember one of my quote fibromyalgia patients at, the pain center was just an undiagnosed celiac patient. Um, yep. Pulled her off of gluten and boom, you know, she was able to taper off of her myriad medications and get on with her life relatively quickly. And it was a big miracle and kind of a big deal at the lab, it, it, or not at the lab, at the clinic. So talking about food reactions, um, I'm sure you're looking for celiac, you're looking for gluten sensitivity and, you know, what, what else might you be doing there? Oh, um, yeah, we do, uh, particularly if we're suspecting any kind of inflammatory condition, upregulation of the innate immune system related to any kind of autoimmunity driving their pain. Uh, It's essential that we look for the environmental triggers uh, that fuel that, right? It's always something is irritating their immune system, and often they need the genetic propensity with the right HLA pattern, all that kind of stuff, and the hyperpermeability, leaky gut, and so forth, but there needs to be an environmental trigger, and that sometimes that's aberrant microbiota, right? It could be Mm -hmm. bacteria expressing certain peptides in the gut, and so forth. forth. It could be chronic viruses, but quite frequently, it's, it's food. You know, it's the stuff we put in our face every day, so you need to look not so much for food allergy in the sense of a true allergy, an IgE-mediated, immediate, you know, like an immediate atopic reaction, anaphylactic reaction. That's not what we're generally hunting down. Um, I'm looking for what foods activate that person's innate immune response, so inflammation, basically. Um, and uh, the test I find most useful in doing that, and it was just validated uh, significantly in uh, both a clinical and a mechanistic study in just up the road here in Yale um, 
is the ALCAT test, which looks at, and that's, that test has been poorly understood for a long time because people try to align it with IgG tests or IgE tests or other quote-unquote food allergy or sensitivity tests. And really what it is, is not that. It's really a test looking at what activates your white blood cell population and creates degranulation, creates uh, sort of um, cytokine patterns associated with, um, with innate immune reactions or inflammation. Uh, and that's what that does. It's a referendum on that. So we utilize that type of testing quite frequently to try to get people off diets that are clearly um, not agreeing with them from an immunological standpoint. <clears throat> okay. All right. Well, as you probably know, I've had some questions on Alcrat. So if Yale's just, Yale's just done a solid research on it, I did study on it, I'd definitely appreciate seeing the Yeah, and there's really good research from all over the world at different academic centers. I think the problem has been, I think partly on the lab's messaging, which is, you know, it was positioned initially as a food sensitivity, food allergy test. And in reality, they use that modified culture counter technology to assess the immune response to way more than foods. You know, they look at herbs, drugs, food additives, molds. Um, it's really not a food sensitivity test at all in the classic sense. And it doesn't align to an IgG test, which is an entirely different phenomena. Um, it is really, an, I like to call it an innate immune response test. And when you look at it from that perspective and you evaluate it on that perspective, um, your uh, opinion generally changes of it. If you're trying to do split samples with an IgG test, for instance, there's, it's not going to align. It's just not. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Well, it, listen, when they publish that Yale paper, keep me in the loop because I'd really like to see it if they haven't yeah, done it's so been yet. put out an abstract already from presentation at a major conference, but it's, uh, it's in uh, final review right now, both at plus one and I think at JAMA. So. Okay. Wow. Okay. All right. Keep me posted. Okay. So let's move on to treatment in our, in our final minutes here. Um, what are you, what are you doing with these patients clinically for treatment? Well, the, um, we'll take the classic fibromyalgia patient that, you know, the patient really has this. Mm -hmm. It's really a multi um, front approach, right? You have to deal with, if they had significant abuse, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, that their nervous system has really never got over, we deal with that in the hypervigilance uh, in several ways. One is, I'm lucky I have a practice partner who's very skilled in sort of functional EEG, and we'll do EEG studies on them and look at their brainwave patterns in the waking, relaxed state, and we'll run them through different cognitive behavioral protocols using e real-time EEG with audio tones and different tasking things that allow them to learn how to change their brainwave patterns to a more calm state or more normal state, which also helps them get into better sleep states when they sleep. And we transition them over to not be dependent on an in-office EEG system, but we'll move them over to something like a heart math, you know, like uh, yes. heart rate variability application on their iPad or iPhone or something like that for just uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. A lot of times we'll find out what resonates for them and get them doing mindfulness meditation or some calming sort of uh, uh, low, um, 
not vigorous yoga, but more stretching, you know, mobility, relaxation yoga, but also uh, sometimes just deep breathing exercises, guided imagery, prayer, whatever really works for them, particularly in the evening as they're preparing for bed. We work with their sleep hygiene, you know, off of the electronic devices late at night. I spoke at IFM this past year on this exact topic of sleep dysfunction and, and fibromyalgia and global pain, and we talked about a lot of the different approaches toward better sleep and sleep hygiene, you know, working with the environment of their sleep, working with their circadian rhythm and such um, things like that. Um, if necessary, uh, we send them to, uh, I have a couple of counselors, mm -hmm. psychologists and counselors who are really versed in this sort of hypervigilance, PTSD, almost variant type of issue. Um, uh, they will work with them. And some of the new trends are not to go revisit the abuse and the issues, kind of picking at the scab, but finding techniques to sort of move beyond it, sort of, they call it forgiveness therapy a lot, and it's not necessarily implying that you forgive someone who may have horribly abused you, but sometimes that person is now an elderly parent or a family member. They're very different now. Uh, there's uh, an opportunity to sort of um, forge a new relationship with them. Um, they will be even apologetic about it, and, and, and there's a lot of therapeutic value in coming to a new kind of mind space about that for the, for the victim. Sometimes that's not possible. Maybe they're deceased. Maybe they've never changed at all, in which case you still have to come to a place of forgiving and moving on within your, your own psyche. Um, from the biochemical side, we really zero in on some of the known aberrant patterns, and one of them is these patients with classic fibromyalgia have persistently low central serotonin and even enteric serotonin. So um, we try to do things to get their serotonin levels up, including precursor therapy like 5-hydroxytryptophan is what I use the most, combined with things like melatonin at night and theanine and uh, calming botanicals like German chamomile and ashwagandha and um, phosphatidylserine, things that calm the stress response. Uh, our adrenal tonics, or they're, I'm sorry, they're adaptogens, but they're not stimulating, right? So we don't use Panax ginseng. We don't use rhodiola. We don't use licorice. We don't use those things that are more appropriate if someone has low catecholamines, right? Mm -hmm. So we stay away from anything that's stimulating and use things that are calming, but are adaptogenic, things that help get you into better stage uh, th three uh, and four sleep. So some 5-HCP at night with melatonin and sometimes a little bit of GABA, pharma-GABA. We use chewable pharma-GABA uh, frequently for anxiety, panic attack. Um, and we generally will support mitochondrial function um, if there's any problems there at all with things like therapeutic levels of a very good bioavailable CoQ10, some ribose, maybe some higher dose um, carnitine, uh, uh, nicotinamide uh, riboside, nicotinamine riboside, where you know that novel form of uh, nicotinamide that can be very helpful in mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, and uh, finally, we need to get these patients moving again. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in my book, The Fibro Fix, I do this whole sort of 21 day upfront um, foundational program where 
while they're reading and trying to figure out by answering questions, different gateways in the book and so forth, do I really have classic fibromyalgia or do I have one of these other masqueraders? And if so, which bucket of masquerader am I in and how do I address it while they're trying to figure that out? We're just running them through like a, a comprehensive 21 day sort of detox elimination diet. Not that that's a cure for fibromyalgia, but it's just sort of metabolically resetting them, getting them prepared for a recovery. If there is any inflammatory issues driving their pain and issues, it's helping with that, taking the heat off their immune system. But part of that is also calming, you know, um, practices like we talked about. But the third element is getting them moving again. The body has to move. Structure and function, very dictated so or very related. So you have to get the functionality back by moving the body. But that doesn't mean exertional exercise. So like in my book and on the website in the resource page, there's a whole expanded exercise movement self-treatment guide that gives exact pictorial instructions and things on how to move how to regain mobility, uh, range of motion without taxing the person metabolically to where they feel like they got hit by a train. But it's really important to get them moving again. So we attack it with all those different ways. If there's thyroid issues, we deal with those too. If they also have myofascial pain syndrome, we do some physical medicine. So we basically treat them as an individual on what we find. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you know, you've, I just really appreciate all that you've given us today, Dr. Brady. I mean, your expertise in this area is just, it's really, it's very apparent. Um, and I, again, encourage folks to look on the website. You'll see the papers uh, Dr. Brady referenced and we'll, we'll link over to his site. Um, yeah, Kara, if they just go to fibrofix.com and then uh, they'll see a, a tab along the top that says resources. Okay. It, will, it will give, not all of my papers, certainly, but some of the more uh, seminal papers, there's three of them listed there. And okay. then uh, on the bottom, there's the questionnaires and guides we discussed. So there's the metabolic, there's the electronic uh, interactive version of the metabolic screen questionnaire, uh, if they don't have that. There's the uh, uh, ACR diagnostic criteria questionnaire I referred to, if they don't have that. Uh, there's also that diagnostic reasoning guide. Um, that I had in one of my papers. There's also a much more comprehensive algorithm of how to work up a patient in that 2006 uh, paper in JMPT. Uh, and there's a link to the expanded exercise and self-treatment guide. Fabulous. Well, we've right. gone, yeah, we've gone over, but I think it was, it was really worth it. Thank you Great. so much. Well, I hope it's helpful and uh, good luck everybody out there. These are not easy patients to deal with necessarily, but instead of that, you know, almost assumed frustration and oh no, another fibromyalgia patient, you know, if you take a look at some of these resources, read some of my stuff, uh, you know, think about that a little bit and put it into action, I think you'll find that these patients are much less intimidating, they're much less frustrating. And when you actually impact them in a positive way, it's extremely rewarding. And they're very appreciative because they've been sort of left for dead, you know, metaphorically at least, by the system. And they're extremely appreciative. Uh, they send in a lot of people uh, to your practice because they, they know other people with the issue. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it can be really re rewarding. So, and I, I hope it's helpful to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. All right, everybody. Until next time.